Thank you for taking time to listen to this week's message from Horizon West Church. You can find even more content, including video archives of this and other past messages at horizonwestchurch.com. And if you're in the Horizon West area, be sure to visit us sometime soon. Now enjoy this podcast from Horizon West Church. Hey, good morning. You guys can have a seat. Welcome to Horizon West uh, Church. We're so glad that you're with us. Man, what a great morning. What a great opportunity to celebrate the goodness of God, the life that he gives and blesses us with. And so it's just a joy to be here, to be celebrating that with you. Uh, As Socrates mentioned, it's kind of been an important weekend for us. Um, And uh, we had the spring fling on Saturday. That was yesterday. We had 905 and over 1,100 that had registered, but 905 that we, we did the Disney clicker thing and made sure we got that number right. Thank you, Ashley. Um, and there's some pictures kind of scrolling there, just a handful of those. But thank you to everyone who came out. Thank you to those that served. Uh, thank you to those that invited. I can't tell you how many times somebody said, I, I would ask, how did you hear about the event? Oh, they would say, this person brought me. And often I didn't, I didn't know who that person was, but they were inviting people, and that was wonderful. And a lot of you brought friends. And so I said earlier, you can't tell who didn't go to the spring fling, but by looking at our faces, you can tell some of us that did. And so if you see an extra glow today, that is where that's coming from. But what a great event. And I want to keep that same energy going because next Sunday is a little thing we like to call Easter Sunday or Resurrection Sunday. And we're going to gather in this room. And we're going to see this auditorium filled with people who are worshiping a risen Savior and learning that there is a God who sent His Son not only to die for them, but to be raised to life for them. We're going to celebrate the empty tune together. So just as you did for Spring Fling, you be inviting. We're going to give you opportunity in just a moment at the end of the service, uh, some tangible ways that you can do that. But it is a great season uh, in the life of the church. Let me say one other thing about uh, Easter Sunday. We are going to be doing some baptisms, and if that's something that you've been wrestling with, you've been thinking about, you've had some conversation around, uh, I would love the chance to just talk to you more about what that is. And so on those connect cards that Socrates mentioned, you can just check that box out in the lobby. I'm interested in baptism. That's not signing up. That's just going to invite a phone call from me to say, hey, I'd love to have that conversation with you and, uh, and see if you'd be interested in being baptized on Easter Sunday. All right. Well, today we conclude a series that we've been calling, What Would Jesus Pray?, And we've been moving through the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6. In fact, you can go ahead, if you've got a Bible, turn there, or a Bible app. We'll also have it on the screen here. Uh, Before we get there, this is going to be Jesus' teaching on the Lord's Prayer. And I want to thank two of our guys, Austin and Socrates, for filling in and for leading uh, and teaching the last two Sundays. They did a great job. Would you help me thank those guys for bringing the Word? I feel rested and ready, which means I might preach a little longer, so just bear with me there. Uh, Not too much, but uh, I'm excited to be with you and here this morning. So let me quickly recap the last few weeks where we've been as we conclude the Lord's Prayer and uh, the What Would Jesus Pray series today. So week one, we really talked about spiritual laws that govern prayer, and we really honed in on this idea of the power of request that God invites us to move His heart in our prayers, that he participates with us in the outcome of events. In week two, Austin talked to us about inviting the kingdom of God to earth. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Last week, week three, Socrates talked about spiritual and physical provision, daily bread and forgiveness. 
And today we're going to focus on that last aspect of the Lord's Prayer, which centers on the idea of protection. Now, I want to remind you of the goal of this series, what it has been all along and has remained, that we would pray more and more effectively as a result of looking at the Lord's Prayer these last several weeks. Jesus' disciples did not say to Jesus, teach us about prayer. They said, teach us to pray. By watching Jesus commune with the Father, by watching his prayers to God, they said, we want to do that too. And so our heart as a church is not that we accumulate information about prayer, but as the result of the things that we're learning, we pray more and more effectively. So we're going to pray in just a moment to begin this portion of the service. Before we do that, I, I want to admit something. I, uh, I have a mind that kind of goes to and fro. I'm pretty sure I don't have ADD, but I wouldn't be terribly surprised if that revealed itself. I think I have a human condition, which is called distraction. Several years ago, someone said that people think in fits and starts, meaning our mind starts down a, a, a pathway and then we go, oh, we're going to go over here now. And, and we do this and the challenge is that our prayers are a reflection of what's in our minds. So if you have ever struggled to sit and pray and focus on doing that, join the club because it is a challenge for me. And so one of the things that I have begun to do in recent years is sometimes to visualize a river running in front of me filled with debris that I don't want in the river. But rather than resisting that, I'm just going to say, I see that debris and I see it just pass by. And I say something like this, God, I'm giving that to you. God, I'm giving you my, my finances. And then I keep praying. I'm giving you my marriage, keep praying. Giving you my children, keep praying. And if you will do that, what you might find is that on your way to prayer, you prayed. You got in the habit of taking what comes into your mind and saying, God, I give this to you in Jesus' name. So I would like to try this morning to practice that together. It may help you to close your eyes or to look down at the floor or something, but I want to lead us in a prayer of saying these words, God, I give you, and let whatever comes into your mind as you reflect, what is that burden? What is that source of anxiety? What's that looming crisis that you're concerned about? What's that unconfessed sin that you need to bring to the light? God, I give you this. God, I give you this bill that I'm not sure how I'm going to pay. Would you just pray in your own space, your own heart and mind? God, I give you this relationship. God, we give you these matters at work that we can't quite figure out. We lay them at your feet and we pray thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, let's go to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to be in verses 7 through 13. Uh, follow along with me, and we're going to kind of read the preamble to the Lord's Prayer because it's important contextually. So beginning at verse 7 of Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says this, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Don't be like them. Your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray instead like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now before we zoom in on these last 
uh, words of the Lord's Prayer, let me give you kind of the big picture reminder. What Jesus is doing essentially is not only teaching us some of the things that should be in our minds and hearts when we're praying, God, your kingdom come, protection, provision, but he's also doing something more than that. He's, he's moving prayer out of the realm of rituals that appease God and into the place of a relationship and doing life with God. When Jesus said, pray our Father, he was inviting us to come to him as his children in need. I know my children, I, I don't want them following me around the house at the end of the night making sure I've locked all the doors. I want them to trust me that I did it. I don't want them worrying as they fall asleep at night, Dad, is there going to be breakfast in the morning? I want them trusting me. And all the more can we trust a father who says, listen, I'm going to meet every need that you have. And so we come to him as children. And we pray, among other things, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You know, sometimes God allows me to experience in my week what I'm going to be preaching on in my weekend, and that was certainly the case this week. Time and time again, found myself praying, God, deliver us from evil. Deliver us from the things that are going on in the world around us. Deliver us from the things that are plaguing our own hearts and lives. God, would you deliver us from evil? And to be perfectly honest, I think sometimes in a culture that has been used to wealth and excess like here in the West, sometimes we get so rooted in this world, we're not praying for deliverance. But this week, I've been saying, God, would you deliver us? I want to be in a place where your kingdom has come, where your will is done without resistance. Deliver us from evil. And so today, we're going to look together at four truths about evil that lead us to something far better, something very good. And we'll look at those together. The first truth of evil that I want to look at with you is this, that evil is a present reality. The Lord's Prayer, as we call it, Matthew chapter 6, begins with our Father in heaven, or in the heavens, and it ends with deliver us from evil. And I think there's a principle here that Jesus is laying down. Our primary focus should be on the reality of God, not on the reality of evil. We, we know it's there. We're not foolish to it. We don't act like it's not a thing. But our focus is in the goodness and the fatherhood of God. Let me say this to those of you that are parents, including those of you that were on the stage a moment ago with little ones. When you focus on what is evil and bad and punishment and judgment, do you know what your children are going to be consumed with and obsessed with? Evil and bad and punishment and judgment. And this world and this life has a way of introducing itself to us and showing us that yes, in fact, it is a broken world. Yes, in fact, there is evil all around us. But for a little while, we can protect our children. And we can lay a foundation that lets them know that they were created in the image of God. And, and the biggest thought in their mind should be the goodness and the beauty and the redemptive nature of who God is. I might say it this way. Our children will ascribe power to what we assign priority. If the priority of our teaching and our training is on don't do evil, because there's going to be a judgment, and there's demons trying to get you, it's going to capture their imaginations. And though it is true, it will rise bigger in their minds than even who God is. We don't want to do that. 
We want to anchor ourselves in the fatherhood, the protection, the provision of God, and then we will have those conversations when they come. You know, it might be helpful to see the priority and progression of these things in the Bible itself. Genesis chapter 1, the first page of the Bible, there is a repeated refrain. It comes at least five times, and it says this, God saw all that he had made, and it was? That was good. Man, he says, this is good. Can I remind you that you are good? You are made in the image of God. You reflect his design and purposes. That's page one. And when you get to the end of the Bible, everything is restored in the good place that God has for us in the garden, the redeemed worshiping him in perfect community with God and each other. It is goodness to goodness. And yes, evil has its day. It is a present reality. But we anchor ourselves in what is good and and who God is. Now, I mentioned that Genesis 1 begins in that way. Genesis 3 is where we have what we call the fall of mankind. And it went about in this way. If you're not familiar with the story, God creates Adam and Eve, places them in a garden called Eden, says, I've given you everything you could ever want or need, including the tree of life, the fruit it produces. But there is this one tree called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And don't eat the fruit of that because when you do, you're going to die. And then what happens is that this serpent shows up. It says there was a serpent more crafty than all God's creatures. And he begins to tempt Adam and Eve. And what it says in Genesis chapter 3 is that when the woman saw the tree was good for food, she ate it. And here's what it means. Adam and Eve in that moment, because he took some as well, decided that they could judge for themselves what was good and what was evil. God, I know you said that was evil, but I'm looking at it. It looks pretty good to me. And so evil at its core is simply when we move into the place of God and say, I'll determine for myself what is best. Do you see that happening in culture anywhere? You see that happening in your life anywhere? See, it's not not just the the rampant, overt expressions, but it's any time we decide we're going to determine it for ourselves, we usurp the place of God and his rule over us. Now, let me ask a question that might be on some of your minds, and it has been on mine for several years now. It goes like this. Is the world becoming more evil? Or, said another way, is is evil more prevalent in our generation than in previous ones? Now, I don't want to discriminate, and I did this for the first service, so I'm going to do it with you as well. How many of you, by show of hands, think that the world is getting more evil? That the the, the generation, it's it's a little more prevalent, maybe, or a lot more than it has been in the past, okay? All right. How many of you go, nope, I think evil kind of stays a consistent course. It's not really getting better or worse. How many of you are in that camp? So I got like 8% participation, about what I got in the first service. Because the other 92% are going, eh, I don't know. Can I tell you how I would answer that question? I'm going to actually give both sides of that answer because, you know, I'm a pastor and we have some political stuff about us. But the the first part of that is this. Evil's always been evil. And resistance to God has always been the primary posture of the human heart. Let me say that again. Resistance to God, not receptivity, has always been, since Genesis 3, the natural posture and inclination of the human heart. That has not changed through generations. Romans chapter 3, verse 11, nearly 2,000 years ago, 
The Apostle Paul said it this way, and he's pulling from the Psalms, which are several hundred years before that. Here's how Paul's going to describe people in the first century. No one understands. No one seeks God. All of them have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. There's no one that does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of snakes is on their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now that's a pretty condemning litany of things to say about people, right? This was nearly 2,000 years ago. So evil has always been evil. Might I remind you that the Holocaust was pretty evil. Slavery was evil. Wars and genocides and, yes, the crucifixion that the Romans crafted 2,000 years ago as the ultimate way to torture and kill people. These are all expressions of evil, and they've been playing on repeat since nearly the beginning of time. However, I would balance that by saying that the acceleration of technologies in our world today have brought our awareness of and our access to evil closer than it has ever been with greater potential impact than it has ever had. What I mean is this, we've always found ways to feed our lust, but we've not always had high-speed internet, right? Human beings have always crafted weapons against each other, but we've not always had semi-automatic shotguns. We've always had knowledge that there were wars going on in the world, but we didn't always sit on our couch and watch 24-hour news stations. I grew up watching bombs dropped over Baghdad at the age of 11, and that's relatively new. And, and I have a belief, and I don't have necessarily science, that you could probably find some, but I believe that the current mental health crisis that we're experiencing is because we have pulled evil so close and it immerses our minds through media, social media, movies, music. It plays on repeat. And we have kids going, I just feel so anxious. Yes. Because we've not been careful to do what we can to keep evil at bay. And so that is what is new. The presence of evil hasn't changed, but its proximity and potential impact, I believe, have. Now here's some good news to offset that. The second truth about evil is a little better. Some evil can be avoided. My father-in-law loves to tell the story of a woman who found a small snake in her garden, and she was one of these people that liked snakes, and so she took it in and got a small terrarium for it. And soon that snake began to grow, and she got a larger terrarium, and over time she got an even larger terrarium, and pretty soon there was such a familiarity with the snake and no terrarium that could contain it, so she pulled the snake out and let it live in the house with her. A little more, and she decided, you know what, this is my closest companion. I'm going to let it be in the bedroom with me while I sleep at night. And over time, she even invited that snake to sleep up and curl up in the bed with her. By that time, he took up the entire rest of her queen bed that she wasn't laying in. And one morning, the woman woke up with the snake wrapped around her throat, choking the life out of her. And with her dying breath, she said, but I trusted you. To which the snake responded, you knew I was a snake when you took me in. And that story illustrates the idea that some of us are playing with temptation to the point that we go, how did I get here? How did this thing turn? I, I never thought the guy would, 
I never thought, well, look at the track record. A snake is a snake. And when we play with fire, we're going to be burned. The reality that we are having to live with and having to come to terms with is not only that evil is around us, we've established that, but that there is also evil within us. There is an attraction, a desire toward things that God has said, no, 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 not that. That is why, quite simply, we as a church and I as a pastor refuse to take an us versus them posture toward our world. We don't divide people up into camps and categories and and left and right. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So so that, yes, there's evil around us, but if I'm honest, there's also evil looking at me in the mirror, and we have to come to terms with that. That's why we pray, lead us not into temptation. My translation of that would go something like this, don't let me find myself in circumstances in which I am likely to sin. Now, let me tell you a story I made up. It, it really is. It really is. The middle schooler, and, uh, and he really liked ice cream. And we're going to make his middle school Bridgewater. And we're going to make the ice cream shop that he really loved, Kelly's. Some of you live in that area. You know what I'm talking about. And this kid loved ice cream. So every day after school, he stopped by Kelly's and he got his ice cream. Okay? And his mom noticed that he was starting to look a little bit like his dad. And... She said, hey, no more ice cream for the rest of the month. I said, oh, all right, all right. So he goes to school. And as he's peddling home from Bridgewater, he's got two options. He can take the route that goes in a whole different direction and gets him home, or he can take the route that goes right by Kelly's on his way home. And this little sixth grade boy peddling with all his might toward Kelly's going, deliver us from evil, Lord, deliver us from evil. It's what we do. We, we, we take these steps towards sin and we go, God, when I get there, I need you to bail me out. I need you to hit the eject button. Can I tell you that the time to pray, lead us not into temptation, is not as you're logging on with no one in the room at two o'clock in the morning. Not as you're showing up at the hotel room and hitting the elevator button. Not as you've put your taxes in wrong, but you've not yet hit submit because you might change it. Lead us not into temptation is saying, God, I'm inviting you to help me participate in the answer to my prayer. Lead me not into temptation by helping me do what I can do to not go into temptation. This word temptation is a unique one in the original language in Greek because it can be also interpreted as trial or testing or sometimes even experiment. And some of you are going, man, what is the difference between a temptation and a trial? And to be truthful with you, I'm not sure that you can know when you're in it. But the motive is always different and the source is different. Look with me at James chapter 1 verses 13 to 15. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. Because God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So in other words, God never tempts because temptation is a circumstance designed to cause you to fail in your faith. Whereas testing, which God will allow into our lives, is designed to refine and purify us and strengthen our faith. 
Did you know that in Luke 4 and also it's recorded in Matthew 4, it says that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The testing was from God, the tempting was not. Does that make sense? So never say, well man, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just falling into sin because God keeps giving it to me. God is not the source of evil. God lives in holiness. He is not evil, nor does he tempt with evil. Now, we've already discovered two sources of evil. First, Satan or the devil. Uh, the, by the way, the devil literally means the tempter or the tempting one. That was the serpent in the garden with Adam and Eve. That's one source. We also have this world around us that we've been talking about. That, those are the, the patterns in our society and our culture that are set against God. They can be institutional. They can be government leaders. They can exist in cultures. They can exist within churches where the devil has a stronghold in the world that is at war with God. But in James 1, we see here a third source of evil, which is theologically understood to be called the flesh. That's the expression or the term the Bible often uses. And so classically, for hundreds of years, believers have thought in these terms. We have three primary enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And this unholy trinity of evil works tirelessly, night and day, moment by moment, to get you off of the plans and purposes of God so that you will start down a path where the enemy can steal, kill, and destroy you. And that's going on all the time. The world, the flesh, and the devil. But remember, I'm saying that some evil can be avoided, and the one of those that you have stewardship over is your own flesh. We can't prevent every news story going on in the world or even in the community around us. We're not going to change the enemy of God's mind and go, you know what, I'm going to relax and let up a little bit. But our job is to allow the Spirit of God to wrestle with our flesh to where we're winning the war against ourselves, to where we're regularly practicing patterns of life-giving godliness, where we're doing the things that Jesus called us to do. And so when temptation comes, there is a way to respond. I'm going to read you four very short verses from the New Testament, and then you're going to tell me, you're going to see what is the biblical response to personal temptation. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 10 14, therefore my brothers and sisters, flee from idolatry. 2 Timothy 2.22, so flee youthful passions. 1 Timothy 6.11, as for you, man of God, flee these things. And so the answer when we are, tempt when we are tempted is to do what? Flee. flee. Run. Run. For those that didn't grow up in Florida and you're still getting used to alligators living in the ponds around your house, let me offer this as a public service announcement. If you are able to run from the alligator rather than wrestle it, choose to run. Okay, I mean, if you find yourself in a situation where an alligator's on top of you, do your best to wrestle it and win. But if you don't have to wrestle it, sprint, run, climb a tree. Do alligators climb trees? Do what you can to get away from that thing because the same thing is true of gators that's true of sin. Once we're in its clutches, it's really, really hard to overcome it. And so we pray, God, lead us not into temptation, but lead us in ways where we're able to avoid and wherever possible run from sin. Remember in Genesis chapter 39, the first book of the Bible, there was a young man named Joseph and his 
his boss, his master, so to speak, had put him in charge of the whole house because he was so trustworthy. But Potiphar's wife, the master of the house's wife, took a liking to Joseph to the point where she continually tried to get him to be with her. And one day, by no fault of his own, Joseph found himself in a situation where she laid hold of him, and Scripture says that Joseph sprinted out of the house to get away. He didn't negotiate. He didn't say, hey, I'm really sorry, but you need to understand. No, no, no. He said, I'm getting out of here. Because when temptation comes, you flee. Let me share just a few things that I do in my own personal life, and these could be maybe helpful for you or other things. There is not a device that I use that doesn't have software called Covenant Eyes. And I've got guys that regularly see that thing, and if there was a need to, they could say, hey, Chris, I saw something, and I need to ask you about that. And I meet with those guys every Tuesday morning at one of the 38,000 Starbucks, and I'm not going to tell you which one, because that's my safe space, but that's what we do, and we hold each other accountable to walking in the light, to, to living in a way that's pleasing to God. We talk about the things that are tempting us to go outside of God's plan so that we keep each other in God's will. And these are all ways that I'm trying to participate with God in not being led into temptation. The truth is, for some of us, and maybe all of us at times, this can be easier said than done. And it's not only because of that unholy trinity that's working against us. The third reason is, or or another reason, is the third truth we're going to look at together. And it's that not all evil looks evil. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this. And before I do, a quick aside. We would all be doing a lot better, and our culture would certainly be doing a lot better, if we just avoided the evil that was obviously evil. (laughs) Like the last several years, maybe decades, like evil's not even really been hiding. I grew up in the, in the rise of first-person shooter games, and about three years later, Columbine happened. Wow, what a coincidence. One of those first-person shooter games was called Resident Evil, and the game franchise and movie franchise together have grossed over six billion dollars. It's not even trying to hide. You add to that the horror movies that that play on our fear with with demonic activity and gratuitous violence, the the music that's just blatantly godless, and we go, man, I don't know why I'm struggling. I can tell you why you're struggling. But even if we get past all of that, there's this second issue that sometimes evil comes to us in ways that we didn't know were evil. Remember, Eve thought that it was good. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 verses 14 and 15 say that even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And so it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Every willful sin, meaning every time we willingly walk into sin, it is a failure to believe God's judgment about what is good or evil. This is the same thing I was talking about in the garden. It's the failure to accept that even if it doesn't look evil, if Scripture said avoid it, we're going to trust God knows best. We're going to trust that the way to hope and life and abundance is by doing His will and not following our own whims. Well, I think that's enough to cover that. Let me say one other thing about evil not always looking evil. Jesus, when He sent the disciples out, He knew that that was true, that they were going to encounter people who were really smooth talkers, who who talked about theology in ways that were really compelling and had interesting philosophies. And Jesus said to the disciples, and I want to say to us today, be as shrewd as serpents, yet as innocent as doves. 
In other words, have a critical mind even as you work to not have a critical spirit. Love people, but don't be naive. Work with people, but but don't blindly trust. You see what I'm saying? Like be in relationship with people and, and love and do the work, but be careful because not all that looks good is good. Here's the fourth and final truth we'll look at together. And the most exciting and best of all, evil cannot overcome good. Can I get an amen on that? Evil cannot overcome good. Amen. I was talking with my oldest daughter, Addison, this week. Addie has become a Harry Potter fan, and uh, she gets to read the book and then watch the movie and that kind of thing. My favorite movie, um, because I just, it's just the best movie that was ever made. It's not a personal thing, but Braveheart, 1994. When they make, listen, when they make a movie better than Braveheart, that'll be my favorite movie. But for now, and, and we were talking about this, and, and I went, yeah, you know what? Almost all the movies we really, really love have the same theme. They kind of all have the same plot. Good overcomes evil. That's it. The ring gets buried in Mordor. Did I say that right? Right? The Death Star explodes. Like, the things that really make us want to stand up and cheer in the theater are good, triumphing over evil. And the reason is because it resonates as truth at the deepest level. We know that what we see on the screen in good overcoming evil is going to be true and is increasingly true in our own reality. A couple of summers ago, my family got to take a civil rights tour of the Southeast, and we stopped in Selma and Montgomery and Birmingham and Jackson, Mississippi and New Orleans, Louisiana and all these places along the way. And as we stood on the front steps of the Alabama State House in Montgomery with uh, Ebenezer Baptist right there, actually Dexter Avenue Baptist right there, I called to mind that it was at that spot with the Jim Crow laws fully intact and Governor George Wallace as bent on evil as ever that Dr. King uttered the words, The moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends toward justice. And that generation got to see some of the bend. They got to see some of the end of the evil of segregation, of oppression, of inequality. And what Dr. King spoke to be true is true because there is one who oversees the arc of the universe. His name is Jesus. Scripture says that he holds the universe together by the word of his mouth. And so we can have confidence that though evil has its day, it is bending toward a day when there will be no more sin or sickness or suffering or tears. The moral arc of the universe is indeed long, but it bends toward justice. This battle of good and evil that we see played out in our world and in our lives is first and foremost a battle between a holy God and the evil one. We are really just collateral damage. The enemy's goal was not simply to get Adam and Eve. He wanted all of us, and here is why. The serpent's effort to take down Adam and Eve was an effort to take what was rightfully God's from him. The satanic expressions of violence and oppression that we see in the world, those are an assault on the image of God. And in our own personal lives and testimonies, when when there is a lure in the water that we move toward that is sin, it is the enemy trying to steal, kill, and destroy what God loves. That is the battleground. And because that is the battleground, you've got to know that God can't be defeated. 
David with a sling and a stone said, you come at me with sword and shield, but I come at you in the name of the armies of God who you have defied. The battle belongs to the Lord. And the reason we can have the great hope and confidence we have is because he will win in the end. Yesterday, Nikki spent uh, a few hours in Target grocery shopping and came home and we cleared out, I, I was more generous than I should have been, she cleared out the fridge and um, all the things that are expired are going in the trash and she pulls out some bacon that somehow fell where, where we didn't know the bacon was. Uh, because if it had been there, it would have already been consumed, but it was there. And it was wrapped in aluminum foil, hiding from us, and she pulls it out. It's still got the, the, the wrapping, and she says, hey, this needs to be eaten because it expires on April 5th. And I was like, that's going to be eaten in five minutes because that's bacon, right? And so, um, but that's what you do with expiration. Like, if something is already expired, you've all had this experience where, like, you're going, man, this expired in 2014. It goes in the trash, right? But it's been in the fridge. But if something is about to expire and hasn't yet, that's when you get working. All right, this is all the food that we're going to eat over the next few days because this is all about to expire. Can I tell you that when Jesus hung from a Roman cross, he put an expiration date on evil. And we don't know the day or the hour. That's not ours to know. But God knows. And my hunch is that the enemy feels that day drawing closer and closer. And this rampant activity that we see in the world, this assault on the kingdom of God, is the enemy knowing his time is short. When Jesus said from the cross, it is finished, he was saying, he is finished. The evil one will come to an end. Death and hell will be destroyed. Colossians 2.15 says it this way, having disarmed the powers and authorities, Christ made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Jesus let evil do its worst to him because through it, he would overcome. This Monday, we all together learned of a news story that shattered our hearts coming out of Nashville. Nikki and I were praying throughout the day Monday as, as I was just beginning sermon prep on this message. Praying, God, please protect our kids from even knowing about it. Our kids are young, 9, 10, 6, like they don't need to know this stuff yet. That one hit, hit a little close to home. But unfortunately, when they went to school on Tuesday, they learned about what had happened. And first with our oldest and then with our, our middle child, we had that conversation. Our oldest asked Nikki, she said, Mom, I just have one question. She said, why? I said, Baby, we don't really know. We don't have all the answers. But both my daughters, uh, nine and ten years old, literally wept in our arms as they thought about what took place. And for me, with young children, and for many of you with young children, hearing that that type of evil could be unleashed, that there is this morning a young pastor with a nine-year-old daughter who's no longer here, and several other families. And we say, God, why? The same question that Jesus asked when he said on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet, and yet, three days later, he overcome death. He overcame the grave. He won not only for himself, but for every person who trusts in him. Death is defeated. Hell is overcome. That is our confidence this morning. And what we do every Sunday and what we're going to do on steroids next Sunday is we're going to celebrate the fact 
that because the grave is empty, death has been defeated. This morning as you walked in, you should have received some elements for communion or the Lord's Supper. If you didn't get those and you'd like to receive them, would you slip your hand up and we've got some folks that can get those out to you. And while that's happening, I want to set this up in this way. On the night that Jesus would be betrayed into the hands of cruel and violent men to be crucified, Scripture says that he broke bread, gave to his disciples, said, this bread is my body which is broken for you. Take whenever you eat it in remembrance of me. Moments later, he took the wine and distributed and said, this is my blood of the covenant poured out for you. Take whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. I've asked the team to lead us in a song that's really going to be more a song of reflection than anything else. And here's how I want to encourage you. If your confidence is in that empty tomb, if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I want to invite you to participate in taking communion with us. Would you just sit and reflect? Maybe it's a posture of prayer. Maybe it's a, a eyes closed or, or not distracted. And would you reflect on the words that are going to be sung over us in a moment? And when you feel ready, would you go ahead and take the elements of communion? Maybe you do that together with a spouse, a friend, a, a roommate, somebody that you came with. Let's reflect on these words together. And when you're ready to take the elements, you take them and we worship the Lord together. Team. Thanks again for listening to the Horizon West Church Podcast. If you were inspired or encouraged by something you heard today, share it with a friend. For more information like our service time, location, and other info, be sure to visit us online at horizonwestchurch.com. Have a great week.